Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. Before we get to the Sunday message, we want to share a need that we have as a community. We had to burn through our savings during the COVID pandemic, and we would like to replenish that in order to stay on mission and continue doing ministry as Grace and Peace Church. If you find any value from what we're doing as a podcast or as a church community, we'd invite you to check out the GoFundMe. There's a link in the description in the show notes, as well as on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, or on our website at graceandpeacechurch.org. And uh, you can read more on that GoFundMe page about what we're doing and support what we're doing. Grace and peace to you as you participate and prayerfully support what's happening and what God is doing through this community and keeping it alive. Grace and peace to you. Yeah, we're going to dig into our study as we go through. We're using the lectionary as our our study, and um, I should have thrown the link in there into our bulletin. Um, But the lectionary has readings that help you go throughout the year. There's a a three-year cycle that you go through. And it'll have prayers, it'll have um, Old Testament, New Testament, um, it'll have epistles, and there will be a psalm generally. And uh, all of them will kind of tie together with a general theme. And what we're doing is we're preaching through that and using that as a guide um, as we study. And so uh, this week we're going to be in Matthew. And uh, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. It'll be on the screen as well. But um, the reading from that, the first portion of that lectionary goes like this. God, from whom all good proceeds, grant that by your inspiration we may think those things that are right, and by your merciful guiding may do them. It's kind of like a, a tricky sentence there. But essentially it's saying, may we know what God's doing and do them, right? And then it goes on and it says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen? So that is the initial kind of, uh, I guess, summed up version of what these passages are going to go through. We're going to use the gospel. We're going to use Matthew chapter 9 as our study today. Um, But I want to kind of circle back to last week a little bit before we get going, because I think this ties in beautifully with it as we talk about what does it mean to think those things that are right, and then do them? What does it mean to like passionately live out what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ? Um, and one of the core things that we, we always kind of hit on is this idea of being doers, not just hearers of God's word. So actually like living into it and stepping into it. Um, can you turn me down just a little more so I can just yell into the mic? It gets super loud. There you go. Thank you. Um, sorry. Um, and so one of the things that I want to I point out just by using just an illustration from my own life, which is a story that some of you guys have heard before, but um, this is the Cardiff Reef Bridge. How many of you guys know where that's at and been there and walked over that bridge? Anybody? Raise your hand. Nobody? Wow, this is new stuff. Okay, this, is a, this picture makes it look way cooler than it actually is. Um, but in Cardiff, South of Encinitas, there is a lagoon outlet that has this bridge there. And growing up, I would go down there to surf because it's a really good wave there. Um, and when you're looking for fun waves to go surf, you're always looking for reefs. And this is one of those spots that is just, uh, it's really famous, really well known. And um, generally when you park there, there's paid parking just south of where this photo is taken and then free parking to the north. So guess where I park? 
free parking, right? And you have to walk over that bridge in order to get to the free parking and to surf the spot. And so um, in high school, I would take my buddies and my younger brothers, my two younger brothers, and we would park at the end of that bridge and we would walk over that bridge and go surf. On the way back of, from one of our surf sessions, we were on the bridge and one of my buddies goes like, I dare you to jump off that bridge into the water. I think it'd be brilliant. And I was like, yeah, that's probably not smart because I don't know how deep it is. This photo is high tide, so it looks deep, but, um, and it's actually way taller than it looks right there. That's not, that's like a solid, when it's low tide and there's not a lot of sand there, it's like a 20 foot drop, maybe more. And, um, and so me, in this phase of life in high school, I was between living to follow Jesus and living to just do my own thing, all right? Anybody been there? Anybody understand? Anybody can relate? Okay, so the idea of like pleasing other people and doing things in order to get approval from my friends or even my younger brothers um, would sometimes supersede logic, reason, and smart thinking, okay? Um, and so one was like, hey, you sh- somebody should jump off that. That'd be amazing, right? And naturally, none of them volunteered. And so I was like, I'll do it, you know, thinking it'd be cool to jump off that bridge and um, have this amazing experience of jumping off into the water and it would be great. And everybody would think I'm cool because I jumped off the bridge. And um, one little thing that I totally didn't plan for was how shallow the water would be. Okay. So I got up on the top of there, jumped off. Soon as I hit the water, I also hit the sand and there was just murky water that made it look like it was deep and it was kind of flowing. And I figured it was deep enough that we would, I would make it in. And Instantly hit the sand, which was pretty hard packed, and sprained both my ankles, okay? Um, That moment of impact was like the moment of regret, where it's like, why did I do this? Like, because someone said this would be cool to do, and somebody should do it, and so I was like, hey, why not me? Um, I, I gave in to the peer pressure of what was going on, rather than the logic that was in my mind that says, that's probably not smart. You should go check before doing something like this. Um, Don't do things for the approval of others. And, uh, and so instantly had that like moment of regret, like both my ankles are hurting. I could barely walk out of the water, had to get into my truck, which was stick shift. So two sprained ankles and a really bruised ego. Uh, every time I'd have to shift and then press the brake. So I didn't have power brakes. So I was like pressing the brakes as hard as I could with a sprained ankle. Um, all the way home was that like moment of like, ouch, ouch, why did I do this? This is a horrible decision. This is embarrassing. This is stupid. Why do I do stuff like this? And I share this story only because, um, and you can kind of laugh at me and think I'm stupid for doing that, um, but also recognize that there are things that we do constantly where we're torn between decisions of like what we know is right, what we know we, we think we know, what we understand is good for us and healthy for us, and really the the enticing lure of culture or of people or of acceptance of, like, if I do this, this will, this will be so much better for my life because I will somehow gain. And, uh, and that tension always exists in our lives, right? That's not just high school. Um, as adults, how many of you guys remember high school and what that experience was like? Okay. <laughs> some, of you, some of you raise your hand. Some of you guys are like, I'm choosing to forget those high school years. Um, and now I'm just, like, bringing them all back up for you. Um, but... The decisions we made in high school, I think when we were younger, um, it's just like now we, as adults, we have this ability to reason a little bit more, right? Um, but we have this ability to, to discern. And, and what scripture does is it gives us this option 
Um, and this is kind of what we talk about almost every Sunday, is like there's this option of following Christ in this invitation, which we're going to get into and what that looks like. Um, and then there's choosing our own way. And, and, and Scripture makes it pretty clear that when we begin to follow our own leading, there is, there's destruction that can happen in the midst of that, right? Um, sure, you can survive life without Christ. Like, you can do that. But really what Jesus starts to do is invite us into this way of life that is thriving. And hopefully I can demonstrate some of that as we look into this gospel that we're going to read today. Um, so let's turn. Um, I was going to... I'm going to reference a little bit from last week just to give a little framework as we start into this, this Matthew chapter 9. Um, what Jesus in this next, or what, what we see in that initial prayer that we read and what Jesus echoes in, um, sorry, John chapter 14 is, if you love me, there's a sense that you're going to want to do what Jesus desires. Um, that the, the, the decisions that we have, the the two options of kind of like our own way of life or the way of Christ um, gives us a decision. And, and what Jesus calls his disciples to over and over, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. There will be like a sense that I want to do what Jesus wants me to do in my life. Um, he says, he who has my commands and keeps them is he who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him or them, male or female. The invitation is following Jesus. And I think that's where the beauty lies in what it means to live life in Christ. And so we're going to begin to look at what that looks like a little bit more. Um, Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting on the, at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Sounds very simple. He just looks at this guy sitting in the tax, tax booth and says, come follow me. And he got up and followed him. There's like an instantaneous like obedience there, which we'll talk about. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came who were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you want to circle or underline, that would be a beautiful thing to do right there. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And it goes on and... Um, in the lectionary, it, it takes a couple of passages and kind of condenses them down so we can kind of get the idea of what the progression of the story is. And it goes on, it says, while he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. So just the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, if only, if I can only touch his cloak, I will be made well. You see the faith in that? Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. 
When Jesus came to the leader's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I love that line because it begins to show a bit of like genuine, honest what's happening in there. They're just like, they just laughed at him. It must be crazy. But when the crowd had been put aside, put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout the district. The way of Jesus, the stories, the, the ways that he interacted with people spread throughout that area because of how powerful it was. Because it went against what people understood to be the norm, right? Um, the first part of this passage, it says that Matthew was called by Jesus. And he instantly got up and followed him. There's something mysterious about that, that if someone random person came into this room and said, hey, well, come follow me, would you do it? Probably not, right? <laughs> so there has to be something more to this story. There has to be something that the gospel writer left out, that being Matthew, um, that there had to have been a pre-story. There had to have been something that Matthew had seen in Jesus prior to that that demonstrated a kind of love, a kind of an acceptance, something powerful enough just like the rest of the story that we read, to convince him to say, he's calling me. This rabbi is calling me to come follow him, which in that day, um, it would have been a huge honor for a rabbi to come and say, come follow me, come learn from me. Um, that would have been extremely humbling to experience that and to have someone invite you, a rabbi to invite you to do that. And so he gets up and he follows because he had to have seen something. There's another moment where another tax collector, Zacchaeus, experiences the same exact thing. They're eager. They'd had to have heard what Jesus was doing in that community. And then when Jesus comes to him, he says, I want to come eat with you. I want to spend time with you. And they're in that moment just caught up in what Jesus is doing because they've already heard his testimony, already seen what Jesus was doing. The big question here that takes place is why does your rabbi sit with sinners? Why does he hang out with sinners and tax collectors? And I was just invite us to to really think about that. Like, this is the Jesus that we follow. Like, why does he hang out with these kind of people? Why was he known for that in that time? And why was he criticized for it? Which is the deeper question. So rabbis in that day did everything possible to stay as clean as they possibly could, not just from germs, but to be ceremonially clean, religiously clean, clean from anything that would... Um, put them at jeopardy from not being holy before God, okay? And so rabbis coming to Jesus saying, why would you hang out with these unholy people, these people that make you unclean, um, would have seen something in that that is so unique and so different. But going back to rabbis prioritizing this, the reason that rabbis would prioritize becoming clean, staying clean, becoming religiously clean, because you could go to the temple and you could enact all these religious duties that they would require. Um, all of those requirements were an attempt to prioritize God and everything. Okay, so hear me on this. Like, this is what everybody will be like. Why did the Pharisees always criticize Jesus for, like, the, what are unclean things he did? Essentially, what they were doing is, why is he ignoring what God really wants us to do? And why doesn't he prioritize God in his life? And so here's the nuance. Jesus prioritized God in a different way. He demonstrated really God's heart that was completely different than the way that the religious culture prioritized 
God, right? So their idea was if you stay clean, you don't touch anybody that's, you know, got leprosy or any kind of diseases and no dead bodies, no blood, right? And we see in this moment where this woman that's been bleeding, hemorrhaging for 12 years, comes and touches him. They're like, this is crazy. You can't do that. That makes you unclean. They're doing everything possible to stay close to God. And what Jesus demonstrates is that the closeness to God is not connected to those things. The closeness to God is the people and their heart, right? So in an attempt to prioritize God, the religious people were completely excluding people. They were pushing people out. They were saying, you're not allowed to be here because you're not prioritizing God the way that we think that God should be prioritized. What Jesus comes in and says, no, I've prioritized people, right? Like this should be like a full, like mind-blown kind of moment. I prioritize people because that's what God does. He prioritizes people before anything else, right? And that's why you see Jesus going to people with leprosy and touching them. And then people are like, you can't do that. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to go to the least. I'm going to the people that need what he says, healing. In prioritizing holy living, they excluded people. And that is not what Jesus does. So why does your teacher, why does your rabbi hang out with sinners? He prioritized people. Because he demonstrated really God's heart. God's priority for people. God's priority for the kind of people that we're called to be. Um, Instead of saying there's places you can't go, people you can't touch, and all these different things, he said no. There is no place that's off limits. There's no place that I won't go and no person I won't go and interact with because I love them. I deeply love them. And his message over and over is because I've not come to for the righteous. I've come for sinners. He's like, I'm coming to set people free. I'm coming to bring new life. Isn't that a beautiful message? And I think that sometimes is where we end up. We end up saying, like, there's only certain people that I'm going to hang out with or certain people that can be in my, um, I guess, friend circle in some ways. Um, And we begin to push people away because we prioritize our own holiness versus prioritizing who God loves. Does that make sense? That we prioritize God's people first. Um, And so what I want to do is I want to show you guys a video. It takes about five minutes. Um, but I think it condenses down what would take me a really long time to really unpack um, when we talk about holiness, because these rabbis were prioritizing God and holiness. But I think sometimes our idea of holiness and what it means to live holy, right, um, can be a little bit twisted enough to where it prioritizes the wrong things. And when we understand holiness, we begin to get a bigger picture of this. So check this out. Um, I think this does a good overview when we talk about holy and holiness. Um, And we'll talk some more about it. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. 
The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know. 
until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. I love how... The Bible Project condenses down and artistically illustrates um, this beautiful concept of holiness and it being this river, right? Using that analogy that he talks about, a river flowing that flows not only to us, but through us, right? That we get to be participants in this. And how beautiful is that? And so um, this idea of Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, that Jesus says, uh, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Jesus references that and talks about that in our relationship with him, that we get to be part of that, that he begins to have this river of life that flows through us and into others, Um, but it requires us to be participants in that, to accept that and faithfully come to that and say, I want to be part of this living water that brings new life. We see the people that come to Jesus, the woman, the, um, the temple priest that comes and says, can you heal my daughter? They both came with faith, didn't they? And the faith that we see in the woman is a faith that understands that there's something going on that God's been doing, right? I want to really quickly talk about where she would have understood this, okay? A rabbi in that day would be wearing what's called a tzitzit, okay? Um, A tzitzit, and maybe you've seen it. um, Jews will still wear this. It's tassels that come off their clothing. Um, If you want to pull up the photo of that, um, I think I threw it in there. I did. And these tassels, uh, Jesus would have worn. And this woman would have understood kind of the backstory of what these tassels mean, okay? Because when Jesus came, he fulfilled prophecy. And one of the prophecies I want to read here is from Malachi 4.2. It says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise in healing in its wings. So she would have been familiar with passages like this that talk about the son of righteousness is going to come with healing in his wings. 
And so the wings is a reference to the, the tzitzi would also be called wings. She's like, if I could just touch those tassels. So we call, in the translation that we have, it just says uh, the garment, his cloak, right? But really the technical translation there is his tzitzi, is the tassels that represent this healing in his wings, right? The wings that hang from his tassels. The tzitzi, um, just to give you a little bit more of like an understanding of what it's all about, uh, it has five knots that you see there that represent the first five books of Torah. And um, there's four spaces in between there that represent the name of God, Yahweh, the four letters, Yahweh in between there. And so these prayer shawls, these, this tzitzit would be a reminder to continually be praying through what God is doing, right? And the invitation that God has continually. And there's a blue thread that's a lot of times woven in there. Um, and this blue thread was, was called uh, a tekelet, which was the hallmark of nobility, that you get to be part of this royal priesthood, right? And you remember in the visual illustration there of this like living water that flows through the kingdom that we get to be a part of. That's what it's referencing to, that there's this healing that's going to happen, these living waters. And so when she comes to him and says, I just want to touch his cloak, there's healing in that. She understood what God's already been doing and was continuing to do through Jesus. And I think it's just such a beautiful illustration of the kind of faith that I think we're invited into that recognizes that what Jesus is doing is coming and bringing healing and he's inviting us to be part of this royal priesthood. We get to be part of that. We get to be connected to it. And so Jesus demonstrates this in, in this, these two stories that we see beautifully of what it looks like to not say, oh, you're, you're unclean, I can't go near you. And he does the exact opposite. He heals. He goes to this person's house to bring his daughter back to life. Um, he does the thing that culturally would not be normal. He's criticized for it, right? They ask, why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Why are you calling these people? And he's like, because I love them, because I deeply care for them, and I want to see them redeemed. He's like, I want to see them experience new life because of what sin does in our lives. He wants to bring that newness. And so um, Jesus made it very clear go and learn what this means, right? And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He comes and says, I've come not to bring in the righteousness, but for sinners. And his invitation is continually saying, I want to be part of this healing, this redemption, this new life that begins to happen. And so I want to close with a couple of questions that I threw in the notes um, to wrestle with during the week. Um, but these few questions, I think, really hone in on what we're learning from Jesus here. And the first one is just, are we a people who live out this kind of mercy? Um, are we the kind of people that allow people into our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our jobs? Are we the kind of people that say, I just got my own agenda and I'm going to do my own thing? Or are we open to leave space for others to come in and begin to be an example of really what Jesus invites us into, the kind of love and the kind of mercy that he displayed on a continual basis, right? Um, and part of that, too, is then where did these people see Jesus doing these actions? Where did people see 
Jesus living this out in his daily life, right? He sat and had meals with these people that everybody else was like, you don't eat with those people. That's unclean. That's like the most intimate space in that culture was to eat a meal with people. And you'd only eat with those that you considered family or part of your inner circle, right? And what Jesus does is he breaks that and he says, no, I'm going to go eat with everybody. I'm going to eat with people that you think you shouldn't eat with, right? So does that challenge our thinking? Does that challenge our actions to say, are we willing to spend time, money, effort in your day, in your week to spend time with people that maybe not fit your agenda or your circle or the way that you think that um, people should be living? And where do people see God at work in the lives of believers? Um, Because I think tied to this is there's a witness that took place. Jesus lived out this beautiful example to where like Matthew and Zacchaeus and other people would just go like, yeah, I want to be part of what you're doing because they'd seen the way that Jesus had lived. They'd seen the way that he treated people so much so that then they went, I want to be part of that. I want to, I want to connect more with this because this is beautiful. And so there's an invitation then to live a life of holiness, a life that says there's something unique about them. Like, why do they live this way? Um, the people that I, that convinced me that Christianity was a real thing were people that said, hey, come on over for dinner all the time. They were constantly had their door open and said, hey, come hang, come hang with us. That it, in their lives, they continually were generous towards me. That they always had space for me in their lives. And they were constantly asking, hey, how can we be praying for you? What do you need help with? How can we begin to serve you? And I was like, this is weird. Nobody does this. But the way that they lived made me go, there's something different. Like you guys are caught up in something that's completely different than I've ever seen. And then I discovered that it was Jesus. And that was what convinced me. And so are we the kind of people that lived such a different life, such a unique life that people go, what is up? Like, why are they so nice? Why are they so loving? Um, I just feel like that begins to challenge the norms of what culture sees and is around on a day-to-day basis. Um, And then the last part, I would say the last question is like, how mature is your faith? Like, do you have a faith that says, I'm not going to be polluted by the world, that I will not be convinced, going back to my story, that when somebody says to do something foolish, something that I know will be destructive to my life or both my ankles, I won't fall for it. That I will be so focused that what Jesus invites me into is such a better life, that I don't need to please people. I don't need to do things to win the approval of others or of our culture, that I can do things because I know what's truly good in Christ. And so that's kind of why I shared that story to kind of come full circle and say, we have decisions to make about our lives, the things that we're going to prioritize during the week, the things that we're going to care more about. And my prayer What Jesus invites us into is that we would prioritize loving people, right? And sometimes my actions, uh, if we look at our culture, will steal from other people, will take from other people's joy in order to make me content. What if we begin to flip that on its head and begin to live like Jesus and say, I'm going to do what it takes to put myself second and others first and begin to love others, begin to prioritize others around me. Um, rather than my own agenda and my own needs, number one. And so um, I know this is a challenging call and an invitation, but it's so beautiful to see how Jesus begins to do this and what it begins to do because 
it says communities started talking about this. Word spread everywhere about what happened because of the way that Jesus prioritized people. So is our faith mature enough to enter into places like that and not be influenced, but rather influence and begin to have um, a beautiful influence of love um, towards our community and towards the people that are around us that I think so desperately want to see that. So let me pray uh, as we go into this week, uh, because I know there's a challenge in there, and I know that that's not easy. It doesn't come simple, um, but it is beautiful. All right, so let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Um, Thank you that we have these beautiful uh, stories of ways that you interacted with people and the ways that you uh, pushed back kind of the religious norm of that day and even today of what it looks like to um, love people, to begin to step into opportunities where we can begin to reflect this river of life that is flowing through us, that is flowing into us, through us, into the world that we live Um, that I think so desperately wants to see that. And so work through us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and lead us uh, as we go into the rest of this day and this week and give us opportunities to see needs around us and begin to live out that, um, that love that you invite us into. We pray this in your name. Amen.